We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This week, we'll be talking all sorts of MLS action, the return of the European leagues. Uh, let's see, some more Ted Lasso. Let's see, Malice at the Palace, uh, water skiing, and so much more. But first, joining me. As always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, August 16th in the year 2021? I am doing well, but I'm warning you, if you give me a hard time during this podcast, the next time I see you, I'm going to come after you like Ron Artest did, uh, that Pistons fan. Oh, my goodness. All right. Should we get into it? Uh, because I, 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 I didn't mention it on the pod last week because I think I watched it after, but I did tweet about it. And my goodness, I got a lot of, well, more than usual, angry uh, responses about my assessment of the new documentary on, I think it's Netflix, right? Is it Netflix? Uh, Correct. Uh, Malice at the Palace. And that what that refers to is uh, the Palace of Auburn Hills, a well, it was a storied uh, type of uh, venue. Actually, I went to the Palace at Auburn Hills many, many times. So actually, I think I saw the second ever event there, uh, which would have been David Lee Roth on his solo tour uh, with Poison opening up. And I was like front row. It was amazing, uh, an amazing show. And then I saw the Pistons play there, either play there uh, or you would just go and watch the video screen and so many different events and concerts over the years uh, at the Palace. It's, it is no more. Like the Silverdome, it is gone. I can't believe that I have, I have lived past the, uh, the birth and the death of some of these, uh, some of these venues. But you're, you're much more well-versed in terms of giving people an overview of what this, is, what this documentary is about. Now that we've both seen it, we can have a little discussion about it. And we won't give too much away, but go ahead. In November of uh, 2004, uh, the uh, Detroit Pistons uh, hosted the Indiana Pacers in an NBA game. And late in the game, there was a scuffle between the players on the court and a Pistons fan threw a beer at uh, Ron Artest of the Pacers. And he reacted by jumping into the stands and 
beating the crap out of <laughs> any Pistons fan he could get his hands on. A teammate of his, Steven Jackson, uh, then jumped in the stands as well. Then the fans poured onto the court. Jermaine O'Neal clocked a Pistons fan who uh, had wandered onto the court. Uh, so it was a giant melee it led to historic suspensions. It's considered one of the most embarrassing incidents in really American sports history. And 17 years later, Netflix decided to release this documentary, which they framed as if there was going to be all these revelations and this never seen before footage that was going to make you think differently about it. Uh, it didn't really hit me that way. I kind of came out of this documentary feeling the exact, exact same way about the incident that I felt like 17 years ago, which is, yes, the fans are idiots, but still, you can't do what Ron Artest did. Uh, we, you know, we had the Nations League final this summer where these Mexican idiots threw stuff at the U.S. players, but Gio Reyna didn't run into the stands and start beating the crap out of Mexican fans. So uh, I don't know. I, I guess I'm supposed to feel sorry for Ron yeah. Artest and Jermaine O'Neal after watching this, but uh, yeah. Okay. So thank you, thank you. So I'm not crazy. Okay. And, and look, I, I as I as I readily admit and and have over the years, I do not follow basketball. Obviously, I, I gravitated to this. A lot because it was happening at the palace. I do remember it because you couldn't avoid it. It was on national news, but I didn't know any of the players, and I still don't know any of the players. This attempt to humanize and almost excuse the players for their actions, I think, was laughable. And that was a point of uh, uh, you know what I said immediately following because I you know I'd said a tweet about how these players, these basketball players, wouldn't last in Concacaf. I mean, if any of uh, uh, players that played in Concacaf. Uh, went into the stands every single time something was thrown at us, we would never finish the game. We would never start the game, by, <laughs> by the way. So, and that does not excuse what, what happened. These guys, is, you know, that were throwing them, you're a piece of shit if you're throwing that, uh, if you're throwing stuff out from uh, from the stands, regardless of, uh, of where it happened. But I was left uh, wanting when it came to this documentary because I think it... Like I said, we were supposed to empathize with these these players and there there was nothing there that made me say, oh, OK, I get your your point of view. No, not at all uh, at, at the end of the day. So anyway, that's a really good one. And I mentioned I did mention last week about Ted Lasso. And, and I said that I was not yet ready to say that it has jumped a shark. But after another week of what I feel is a subpar episode, you're really testing my patience lasso folks uh this christmas episode that came out uh and once again i'm not going to give give it away but less than impressive uh and and once again maybe it's just such a high bar after that first uh season but i'm not going to say it i'm not going to say they've jumped a shark yet but it's it's really really uh, to, to a certain extent ir irritating maybe i just maybe my expectations are too high uh so anyway those are some of the things uh, that i watched anything else you want to mention before we move on no, I mean, something that I watched a couple weeks ago that I neglected to mention on the podcast, I'll bring it up here, is um, this Netflix show, The Parisian Agency, which is about this uh, family that uh, runs a real estate uh, company in Paris and, and very high end. They sell these luxury apartments. And, you know, Paris, you know, hits a spot for me. It's my favorite city in the world. So, and, you know, I'm still in this sort of Francophile tip. I've watched a lot of French shows the last several months from Call My Agent to the Bureau. Uh, so add this to the list. If you're like me and enjoy any show that's based in Paris and it's in French with subtitles and uh, it's just five episodes, a little reality TV show uh, following around this, this uh, French family that runs a real estate company. So that would be the only other thing I would add this week. One of my children is really into uh, France and she speaks French and she studies French. And I, I don't I understand the attraction to a certain extent. I know it's very romantic and, 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 and all that, but 
from a practical perspective in, in 2021, living in the United States, living in, as we do here in Los Angeles, <laughs> I would think that Spanish would be something that you would want to uh, take. A uh, big uh, step for up. me. Uh, you know, I spent a week in Fort Lauderdale vacationing with my parents and uh, yep. the building where my parents live down there, there's a library where uh, the residents of the building can take out books and there's an international section. And I, I picked up a French book the first day after I arrived there and read it cover to cover. Uh, it's a 450 page book on the history of the White House written by a French journalist who was the Washington DC correspondent for some French newspaper. So she covered American politics and wrote this 450 page book on the history of the White House and all the different presidents that lived there. And I read it cover to cover, no problem. So that was a big step for me in my French uh, studies. Nobody wants to hear about what you're reading. Nobody reads anymore. I, 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 I will leave it here. I, I think I did, and I can't remember because I don't know how to work Instagram really, but I know that I saw some sort of comment uh, from somebody, and I can't pull it back up because I have no idea how I got there. But this person, I don't know what was he or she, but they were not happy with uh, the way that we talk about these things at the beginning of the podcast. So whoever that is, this last few minutes was entirely for you, all right? When you have the microphone, then you can talk about whatever the hell you, uh, you, you, you want. But this person was not happy that we discuss our viewing habits uh, uh, on a uh, continual basis here. So, But we're not changing for I'm, I'm actually going to start reading another book today. I, I, I do want to start Downton Abbey this week, but I'm also going to start reading this book that I purchased okay. uh, because I just spent a week down in Fort Lauderdale. I'm on this sort of Florida state of mind. So I bought this book about 1980 Miami, which is considered the seminal year in the history of that city Ooh. between the, the, the Cuban boat lift and and cocaine, and there were race riots that year. And I'm excited to read it and then talk to our good friend Jason Wormser, who grew up in Miami, I think, around that time about it. So uh, that's going to be my next book. Wow. Well, I, I, you know, I mentioned last week about the uh, Cocaine Cowboys series and stuff like that. There's a lot of, uh, you know, early 80s type of stuff going on there in terms of what was going on uh, down there. All right, listen, Mossy, uh, you ready to light this candle? Yep. All right, let's uh, let's dive right into it. And we are coming at you, like we said, on Monday, August 16th. We spent a uh, a later night, shall we say, on Sunday night, just bathing in what was yet another edition of the uh, uh, Seattle-Portland, Portland-Seattle uh, historic rivalry, arguably the best rivalry when it comes to uh, Major League Soccer. Uh, there are others that, uh, that would believe it, it, it isn't, including uh, myself. But nonetheless, it lived up to the hype in terms of the game, in terms of the goal, and goals, in terms of the, uh, the drama. Uh, shall we start there in terms of our MLS roundup? Let's do it. Okay, so uh, the uh, Seattle Sounders right now, uh, again, arguably the best team in the league, but certainly in terms of uh, the points that they have, one could argue that. They go down to their friends uh, down South Portland, and they come in and they just beat up on them in terms of the score. Now, it is a little misleading, uh, to be fair to Giovanni Savarese and the Portland Timbers, in that I do agree that, in that, especially in that first half, Portland had plenty of opportunities, and Seattle turned around and said, oh my goodness, we're up 2 nothing." It ended up being 6-2. to two. Okay, and this is an emphatic type of statement from Seattle, which I think maybe better than anyone in the league is able to finish their chances. And we hear coaches and players always talk about and oftentimes lament the fact that we didn't finish our chances. We didn't finish our chances. It's all fine and well to create chances, but obviously putting them in the back of the net is the ultimate goal. And when you have people that are ruthless in the way that 
Raul Rui Diaz is, for example, or just just in general, the way the team sniffs out opportunities and makes you pay, that makes you a, a formidable type of force. And I think that's what Seattle is. And I think that that's why Giovanni Savarese, the head coach of the Portland Timbers, probably went back and was scratching his head saying, you know, we had a plan, we executed that plan, we created opportunities, but we end up on a historic losing end of uh, yet another game against our rivals who came into town. Uh, this is not a good look for Giovanni Savarese because, you know, if this is truly the biggest rivalry in Major League Soccer and you look at the history and you look at the goals and you look at the personalities and you look at the storylines and you look at the attention that on a continual basis this rivalry and this matchup garners, if this is truly the biggest thing, then in that moment, having... Seattle come down into Portland and drop six goals on you in an embarrassing fashion. I mean, Mossy, there are places around the world where there are ramifications, repercussions from such a devastating type of loss in this particular game. And those repercussions are being handed out as opposed to uh, log slabs after the game. Um, so this is not a good look for Giovanni Savarese. I don't think he's necessarily in danger of losing his jobs. But th- like I said, there are places where in this particular game where, yes, there is a greater uh, objective of winning the league and winning uh, cups and all that kind of stuff. But at the very least, you have to have bragging rights when it comes to your your arch rival uh, with this type of history. That That is not good in the way that it looked in the moment and in the way that it looks in the cold, harsh light of Monday morning. What did you think about this game first and foremost? I agree. Uh, Portland have some serious issues defensively. They have to sort out. It was kind of interesting because you had Sebastian Blanco making his first start since he tore his ACL against Seattle in September of 2020. Then you have Nico Lodero, who's working his way back from an injury, who came on at halftime of this game. And then you had Diego Valeri come on for Portland later in the second half. So you have these veteran South American playmakers uh, it's going to be interesting to see the remainder of the season, how they're incorporated in, into these two teams. And then obviously another veteran, uh, South American, Raul Ruiz Diaz, scoring twice. But uh, yeah, you know, you uh, looking at it from a Seattle perspective, you ignited this massive debate uh, on Twitter uh, by unveiling your list of what you feel are the top five teams in MLS right now. You put NYCFC atop the list. Seattle was second, I believe. Uh, and New England was third. I know New England fans were unhappy with that. Uh, they beat Toronto this weekend. They're all alone atop the Supporter Shield race. Um, but then, you know, Seattle closed the weekend with that kind of performance against Portland. Uh, I mean, I'll let you defend yourself. But I mean, the way I feel about it, uh, listen, I've been touting NYCFC uh, the way they've been playing all season. I think they've played better than their record. There are some metrics that point to them having played the best soccer in the league so far this season. But to me, the only two acceptable answers to the question of who is the best team in MLS right now are New England or Seattle. New England can point to just the, the sheer standings and, hey, they're all alone atop the supporter shield race. Well, Seattle can point to the fact that, hey, we have the most currency coming into the season. We've reached MLS Cup for the last five years and won it twice. And we were unbeaten the first 13 this season. And when we've had close to our full complement of players, we've been the best team. The only reason we had a dip recently is because we were missing a bunch of guys. Um, so how do you, and uh, by the way, Sporting KC deserve mention up there as well. They are currently ahead of Seattle in the Western Conference standing. So I don't want to disrespect them. They're certainly one of the three or four best teams. But to me, it's between New England or Seattle. I mean, your NYCFC pick, as much as I love you enjoy, was you getting a little cute there. Uh, how did we get to this point, Mossy? How did we get to this point where... <laughs> Me, 
on this side, okay, and you over there on that side have kind of flipped in that the data and the analytics suggest that NYC is the best team in the league, and yet you are throwing those out and just using the eye test. You, the 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 nerd that you are, the analytics guy that you are, uh, and now this is this is what's happening. All right, first off, it's it's a subjective type of thing that we are doing. There is no right or wrong answer because if you just want to use the standings, then fine, use the standings, and then it, it's it's very easy to put the, your top five. But this was about who you think the best team in Major League Soccer soccer is. And I, to be fair, was using much more of an eye test than the actual data. That the that the data actually backs my uh, pick up only makes me look that much better. Having said that, it's not a it's not a balanced type of schedule. We don't see these teams play each other, so it's difficult to assess you know what the East. Uh, Eastern conferences versus what the Western conference is, what these individual teams, you know, when it comes to New England, we haven't seen them against Seattle. When it comes to NYCFC, we haven't seen them against uh, Seattle or other teams necessarily in the, in the league. I think that NYCFC, you know, when, when it comes to the data, I mean, the data is there. But when it comes to NYCFC, I think they are built for the long term. I think they have depth. And I'm not, that doesn't mean that New England hasn't had depth. I mean, we've just seen that they have been able to function even without, you know, the likes of Matt Turner and, and Tejan Buchanan and, uh, and these types of things. Uh, but I, I just think that and there's a lot of depth. You mentioned, you know, even in the game last night, one thing that we're seeing in Major League Soccer is there is the ability now um, when it gets past that 11 to have some real quality players that are com- uh, that are coming in. And you mentioned, you know, Valeri coming in as a substitute. And, you know, some of that is just his age and what he is, um, you know, on uh, on one side. And Lodero, I know he's coming off of an, an injury, but there there is more depth. And part of that is the ability to spend and spend, spending, uh, spending smarter. So my five for people that didn't uh, watch this weekend maybe were uh, I had NYCFC at the top. Then I had the Seattle Sounders. Then I had New England uh, Revolution at three. Then I had Sporting KC. And then I had the Los Angeles Galaxy, which uh, is a game that we also did uh, this weekend as they went up into Minnesota and beat the uh, uh, beat the Loons. But, you know, you can have your own uh, thing. It wasn't, a, once again, it was about what the best team is. And we know that MLS is is forgiving in a certain sense in that, you know, you can get hot at different times and you make that run to the playoffs and you can get hot into uh, into the playoffs. But this is also a league of relative to most of the rest of the world, almost the re- all the entire rest of the world of, of parity and manufactured parity. And so it's very, very different to look at especially the upper echelon of teams and what separates them can be such a small type of uh, type of thing. And as is the case. Everybody needs my validation. Everybody needs me to tell them that they are good. And everybody craves that, uh, that positive reinforcement that comes when I reach down with my hand and tap you on the head and give you that golden anointment saying that you are good and that I find you good and that I find you entertaining and I find you successful. I understand that. I get that. I don't dole it out willy-nilly, okay? And you have to earn it. And so I, I recognize that when you don't get it, uh, you, you can sometimes come off pe- uh, appearing needy. And that's the case with a lot of these teams when they don't get that number one uh, spot from me. And I get it. And things will change. Week to week, they might change. So who knows? We're actually doing NYCFC this coming weekend. So I will see my best team in the league this weekend. And we'll see if the pressure gets to them. And speaking of pressure, by the way, if I don't put you up there, 
actually, I'm doing you a favor. If you look at the history, and, and Mossy was able to crunch the numbers uh, uh, yesterday for me, seven teams that have won the Supporter Shield have ultimately, in the 25 different MLS seasons that we have had previous, have ultimately won MLS Cup. That is not a good percentage. I think it turns, you know, it's like 28% or something like that. So being the best in terms of sitting on top of the league and winning Supporters Shield in MLS is not a direct path. As a matter of fact, it's a very indirect path, uh, given the given the data of actually winning MLS Cup. So you should you should want me not to put pressure, not to put you up on a, uh, on a pedestal, because if you ultimately live up to that supporter shield, congratulations. But the chances are, and the data backs it up, that you're not going to win uh, win MLS Cup. Mossy, what anything else on this? Well, you mentioned the Galaxy, 17 new players and a new head coach. Uh, to be where they are is remarkable. Uh, their technical director, Jovan Karofsky, was supposed to be a guest on this podcast today, but you're not going to believe this. Jovan flaked out on me. So No, you don't uh, say. He is not on. But nevertheless, uh, you know, I've mentioned this before. I am enamored of Greg Vanny. Uh, I think he's doing a phenomenal job. Uh, so can't say enough about the Galaxy. You know, there's this, we also had this debate this weekend over whether they are back and what do you define as the Galaxy being back? Does it have to be them being at the top of the league and legit MLS Cup contenders or just being one of the upper echelon teams? Is that suffice to say that they're back? So I don't know where you come down on that, but, but regardless, I mean, they're, they're certainly doing a very good job, much improved from the last few seasons. My goodness. Um, okay, so a couple of things on the, on the Galaxy game that we did. Yes, the Galaxy are back. In that they are, you know, upwards at the top of the league um, in terms of the points. Uh, they are where we expect the galaxy to be. And my good friend Stu Holden, uh, when we were talking about this on air, he, you know, he made the point of, you know, the galaxy isn't just kind of being competitive or being upper echelon. The galaxy is about winning things. And so I think he feels that until the galaxy is winning things again, they are not necessarily back. Uh, I'm not quite there. I, I I believe that. I mean, and maybe it's the the the, uh, the low bar that has been set over the past few years here. To your point, though, you know, Greg Vanny has to be in the running for coach of the year. And look, I know he and he readily admitted when we talked to him before the game the other day. Hey, listen, I've been the coach of two of the highest spending MLS teams uh, in history up in Toronto and now with the L.A. Galaxy. So he's got a whole lot more assets uh, and a whole lot more ability to do some of the things that you're talking about. But still, to come in, especially in this league, and to fundamentally change not just the personnel, you talk about all the, uh, the actual player changes, but the way I think that this team thinks about it. We talked to Sasha Kleschen, and he came right out and said, I like going to work. And that was not the case in previous years uh, at, at the Los Angeles Galaxy. You want to stay. You want to be there. They are, in a strange way, working more but running less. All right? Not everything can be solved just by run more or be stronger. Okay? And I think Greg Vanny really understands how to build an identity, a, a personality, a culture of accountability on and off the field of connection, of relationships, player management, I think, is something that he doesn't get enough uh, credit for. But ultimately, he's the coach of the Los Angeles Galaxy. And the Galaxy is and always has prided themselves on winning and ultimately being there in the end. We'll see if he's ultimately there in the end. But so far, so good. As I said, they went up to Minnesota. And, and speaking about a, 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 a huge um, difference of the way that they go about things, and I'm not saying one's right or wrong, you know, uh, we talked to uh, Adrian Heath, the head coach of the Loons up there in Minnesota. 
And he immediately, before we even started talking about anything about the game, he immediately wanted to make it very clear that he was not happy in the way that he and his position as head coach was framed in the first part of the year when they lost four in a row. And people, including myself and Stu Holden and others, started talking about him being on the hot seat. Okay, And so, once again, I want to apologize to Adrian Heath and to Minnesota United and to all the loons faithful out there. Because in my criticism at the beginning of the year, I was treating you like a big club. I was treating you like a mature club. And obviously that's not the case, okay? You are a small, sensitive type of club, just punching above your weight, a little engine that could. And so that's the way that, uh, that I will treat you uh, uh, going forward. But since then, they have done great things. And I love Adrian Heath and I love the loons up there. Uh, this was, I think, a real important game for the Los Angeles Galaxy. This was a wasted opportunity for Minnesota, which I think had an opportunity to beat what this year, at least, is a very, very competitive and good LA Galaxy team. And they, once again, were unable to finish their chances. And they are a number nine away from being an elite team in Major League Soccer right now. Um, and who knows if they ultimately are able to find somebody up there that can, uh, that can finish the chances. Because that you know they're they're solid defensively. They are. I think they have an understanding of how they want to play. Reynoso is is a game changer, but he can't do it. He can't do it alone. Other games or other things you want to talk about, Mossy? Well, I mentioned all the success that Seattle's had in recent years. When that happens, your assistant coaches become head coaching candidates. And uh, big news uh, last week: Atlanta United have hired Seattle assistant Gonzalo Pineda as our next head coach, which was because it's Atlanta, it was obviously big news. And I thought it was interesting. There were Red Bulls fans on Twitter asking you, how come the Red Bulls don't get as much attention as Atlanta? And I know you had some thoughts on that, but so talk about the Atlanta hire and then this whole larger point of why, why does Atlanta United get so much attention as a franchise? All right. So Gonzalo Pineda, uh, congratulations to Gonzalo Pineda being named the head coach of Atlanta. It is arguably the biggest job in Major League Soccer, uh, given just the sheer size of that club. I mean, they had 70,000 people in Atlanta yesterday at the Mercedes-Benz uh, Stadium. The expectations, the way that they burst on the scene and there was no soft launch, it was full on, all guns blazing. But also in the way that over the last couple of years, um, they have gone from great heights to incredible depths and the failure that has been the last couple of years uh, on the field and by the leadership off the field. So he has been brought in. Now, this is a, a, an interesting one. I don't think he was the first choice. I think they wanted to go kind of bigger, sexier, uh, you know, maybe more, um, you know, international when it came, when it came to this. Uh, but this is also not the first time that Pineda, uh, his name hasn't been, uh, you know, has been involved in a possibility. I think when you are at a, at a team like Seattle with all of that success, people are going to kick the tires. And but this is also somebody who's never been a head coach. You know, I had, I had talked about Atlanta in terms of their job search when they said you know, the, the notion was they need to get somebody who understand the, understands the league. Fine. Agreed. Go get somebody who has a track record of being successful in the league. Go and poach an Oscar Perea or a Caleb Porter or a, you know, I don't know, a Jim Curtin or, or you know, even even a Robin Frazier. I don't know. But but go out there and maybe there's a, a transfer fee attached to it. Well, all right. If you, real, if you realize and believe that it's such an important hire, go out there and pay some money for it. That's not what they did here. Okay. They went out and yes, they got somebody who I think understands the league, but he understands it simply and completely from a assistant coach. And you ask any, anybody that's ever been around an assistant coach, that dynamic 
Uh, and that personality is very, very different than the head coach. You can be much closer to the players. You can do things that a head coach would never do and, and can't do. Um, you are often the conduit. You are often the, the, you know, the shoulder to cry on. You are often charged with you know, translating or transferring messages uh, from, from the top. And like I said, being that conduit. Uh, so it's a very, very different type of situation. And you are giving him to the keys to a very, very expensive and fast car. And you are hoping that he has become a good mechanic in the shop that is Seattle. But there is absolutely no track record when it comes to actually being uh, a head coach. So I think that's where some of the curiosity and maybe some of the concern is when it comes to uh, uh, comes to this hire. But I'm here for it. I can't wait to see it. Um, and it's a great opportunity for, uh, for Gonzalo uh, Pineda. And it, and it comes specifically. And by the way, a lot of times when we see assistant coaches matriculate up, it's oftentimes within the same system. They understand the, t- the same type of system, and now they're just being elevated to that position, either because they believe that you're the right person for the job or they were in a, a temporary capacity and they did a good job uh, going forward. But this, this type of hire is unique, and it's different, and I didn't necessarily expect, uh, expect this. Stu Holden, again, uh, last night, I think he was, he was saying that you know, he might have seen it as kind of a, of a, of a knee-jerk type of hire. Um, I don't necessarily think that that's that's the case. Uh, by the way, you know you, you want the, you want the size and scope of this team. Evidently, Gonzalo Pineda was whisked up to the owner's yacht <laughs> in the northwest up there in Alaska to finalize this uh, uh, this uh, this deal. And um, you know, with that comes responsibility and comes expectations. And while in the past we have said, all right. You have to get up to speed, and there's a betting in of someone coming from the outside because of the unique aspects of Major League Soccer. There shouldn't be. All right, you should understand exactly what this league is. Then that's why you were hired, and you should be able to hit the ground running. Uh, he wasn't coaching uh, yesterday uh, in Atlanta's win. By the way, um, one nothing win against LAFC with uh, Joseph Martinez getting on the score sheet. So it's good to see him back uh, back scoring. But at some point. We are going to see Gonzalo Pineda take the reins of Atlanta. And as I said, he's got a real fast car. We'll see if he can drive it. Uh, what else, Mossy? Well, let me just say, Moe Du is happy with Pineda, although he's become such a show for that organization. They could have hired Carrot Top and he would have said it was a, a good hire. Uh, but as to the second thing I mentioned, uh, I know there were some Red Bulls fans that asked you, you know, there's so much examination of uh, Atlanta's dysfunction while the Red Bulls are just as big of a mess and nobody seems to care. Right. Uh, what do you say to that? Yeah, I mean... Being relevant is something that every team in Major League Soccer and and all teams around the world and every league strives for. But in particular, in North America, in a league like MLS, because of the incredible competition with other sports and more established sports and more established established leagues. And when you are in the New York metropolitan market, as New York Red Bulls and as NYCFC are – there is an expectation that you are doing things big, bold, that you are super clubs, all right? Nobody in the New York market wants to see you with a uh, Minnesota United mentality, okay? And that, that just does not fly. And yet that what is what and, you know, the Red Bulls have been. And to a certain extent, NYCFC, given their, their stadium situation. The, you know, the, the ironic thing is 
maybe it's not ironic, but if you, we, you know, we have these two teams, which I think absolutely in the New York market, it can sustain two MLS teams. And yet, if you combine them, take, for example, the great stadium that the Red Bulls have, the money and the aspiration that NYCFC has, and kind of put them together, put them in a, in a great, uh, great location, you would have almost your perfect New York, uh, New York team. That's not what you have when it comes to New York Red Bulls. And so when, when people care about what Atlanta is doing, it is relative, first and foremost, to the amount of money that they spend, the size. You know, I mentioned 70,000 people at their game uh, yesterday, their aspirations, what they have done in the past, the success that they have in the past. And the fact is that Atlanta's failure, all right, don't kill the messenger, but Atlanta United's failure is more important and more relevant, okay, to people than any type of New York Red Bulls in this version of the New York Red Bulls, any type of success that they have. And they're not having success. I mean, this is, this is, this is a small market type of mentality for a big market team. And that's, that's not good. That's not good for the teams. I don't think that that is good for, uh, for the league. And so that's where you know, some of that was, was coming from. And once again, you can yell and scream at me. You can kill the messenger when, when, I, when I tell you something like uh, that. This is just the reality of the situation that the ownership has created in these individual places, okay? And yes, I'm not on the ground. I'm not in market for some of these teams. And so I am coming from it actually from the perfect perspective in that if it informs me, if it impacts and affects me, then there is that's relevant, okay? If it's out of sight, out of mind, and I'm not caring about it, and it never really goes on my radar, something's wrong. And look, I'm not the I'm not the be all and end all when it comes to everything out there. Uh, but you know, ultimately, you want to be relevant. You want to be relevant nationally. You have to do things that resonate. You have to be of interest to people in the things that happen. And Atlanta United, by the way, whether it's good or bad, it is of interest to people. There's plenty of people that sat back over the last couple of years when Atlanta United was flailing and failing and sat back and said, watch it burn. This is awesome. But you know what? They didn't, they didn't, their eyes did not leave the scene of the crime and of the devastation. They wanted to see it burn because it is Atlanta. Nobody cares when it comes to uh, the, the Red Bulls around, uh, around the country. And so that's what, that's what you want to be. And that's what a New York metropolitan team should be, whether it's the Red Bulls or whether it's NYCFC. Uh, last week, we had some uh, MLS versus League MX action. We'll start with the League's Cup. Mm -hmm. On Tuesday, Seattle put out a strong lineup and thumped Tigres 3-0. But that same night, Sporting KC put out a skeleton team and got hammered by Leon 6-1. Uh, the following night, NYCFC went out to Pumas on penalties and Santos Laguna beat Orlando. So uh, Liga MX prevailed in three of the four quarterfinals in the League's Cup. Uh, but what Sporting KC did really annoyed some people that are concerned about the reputation of MLS. Uh, Peter Vermey said afterwards, look, we have too many games right now and I'm focused on MLS and essentially said I'm blowing off this League's Cup competition. Uh, what say you? I love Peter Vermees. He's a friend of mine. I have incredible respect. You know there's a big butt coming here, okay? Uh, <laughs> he is, you know, I think one of the great minds in soccer in the world. Um, I think that any club would be happy to have him in any capacity, whether it's a coach, uh, whether it's a technical director, uh, whether it's a president, um, as would, I think, the United States Soccer Federation uh, and, and others out there. 
uh, because of the way that he thinks, the way that he thinks about the game, the way that he thinks about organizing a club, even beyond the actual players and the game on the field. Um, and I think he also thinks about progressing not just his team, but the league. And I think that he is incredibly valuable behind closed doors when people get to talk and think about where this league is going because of the way that he thinks about the game. But in this case, I think Peter Vermes was wrong in that he cheated us. He cheated each and every person that bought tickets to that game, that uh, League's Cup game. He cheated all of us that tuned in to watch that game. He cheated everyone that bought in thinking that this was going to be taken seriously by the team. The point that he was trying to make, I can agree with and I can sympathize with. But in, in making his point, as I said, he cheated all of us. And that's not something that, that I'm okay with. If you truly believe this, that this is going to hurt your ability to do your job. You say it well ahead of time. So everybody knows. And people will say, well, you know, the, the, uh, the Leon fans, they had a good time. No, they didn't. They, they saw their team beat up on a inferior, purposely inferior team. That's not, there's, not, there's no competition. There's no valor. There's no honor in that. So we were all cheated because Peter Vermes wanted to... Uh, make a point. And that's not that's not something that I'm okay with. If that's the case, then Sporting KC and Major League Soccer should should refund everybody and anybody that spent any money, time or resource on that game. And you know, I mean, look, it worked for him in that uh Sporting KC went to Dallas and won 2 nothing. And so his team was rested and sharp. Um, by the way, Seattle uh, went down, and we just talked about what they did down in, uh, in Portland. <laughs> so they sure as hell didn't miss a beat, and they were able to do it. So, yeah, it, it, it didn't anger me, but I was, I was disappointed in the decision and in the way that that decision was framed after the game. If you want to do it, fine. But you know, don't do it at the expense of your fan base. And there'll be fans that'll say, oh, no problem with it. It's no problem, all that kind of stuff. But no, it's just not right. I don't think, I don't think it's right. And if you have a problem with this, uh, with this League's Cup, then take it up with your ownership. Take it up with the leadership at MLS and figure it out. And if you still have a problem with it and you don't want to do it and you have a desire to express the fact that you have a problem with it, then do it publicly, all right? Do it ahead of time so everybody understands where you're coming from. But he didn't do that. He chose to do it in the moment on the field. And once again, in doing so, he cheated us. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm of two minds on it. Um, I, I love MLS, League MX stuff. I'm excited for the All-Star game uh, this year. I, I really get into CCL. But I also do feel like the calendar is oversaturated. And it annoys me that these federations can't help themselves. They're always looking to create new competitions and expand existing ones. And I had trouble getting into the League's Cup. It sort of popped up out of nowhere. And I kind of felt like, but do we really need this right now? I mean, how do you feel in general about having this competition, League's Cup? you got to start somewhere. Okay, and yes, this is not something that has incredible popularity, but everything starts from 
a, a seed and planting these seeds and growing it. And if you don't have buy-in from the very people that are planting the damn seed, then you have a problem. So once again, this is on this is on this is on the league. This is on Don Garber on down. All right. If this is a priority, then you have to make sure that everybody understands that. And by the way, if this if this priority is going to affect your ability to do your job, you make it very clear. If you're Peter Vermes or anybody else, you make it very, very clear to the powers that be, including your bosses, that this is what's going to happen. And if you can't do your job, all right, then find somebody who can do it and who will do it. So, yeah, I mean, it, gets, it, it got me a little bit uh, riled up. Plus, it's embarrassing. You know, that score goes around. People didn't necessarily watch the game or people don't know the context of what happened. They're just looking at it. And people out there are, they, they love to, we, we love to eat our own, but they love to have something that points and confirms whatever it is that you believe. And for a lot of people that believe that MLS is inferior, this is a perfect example. And now they get to use that. Peter Vermes has given them an opportunity to say, here, it's inferior. And just in general, in the whole Mexico-U.S. thing, I know we tend to separate club versus country, but coming out of a summer where Mexican fans were beleaguered because of those two final defeats of the United States, some of the club results, and we'll get to CCL in a second, did allow them to puff their chest out a little bit again uh, and recover some pride. Uh, but so uh, with CCL, the semifinals uh, began last week. There's one MLS team left. So the, the first uh, game we had was an all-Mexican affair. Uh, Monterey beat Cruz Azul 1-0 in the first leg there. Maxi Meza with the goal. Uh, so that one still feels pretty wide open to me. And then the next night, the Philadelphia Union went down to Azteca. They lost 2-0 to Club America. The second legs are in mid-September. So Philadelphia now have to turn around a 2-0 deficit. Uh, your thoughts? Uh, so, you know, the first game uh, in between the two Mexico teams we did, uh, myself and Keith Costigan, and I thought that Monterey is going to rue all the chances that they missed. Both very, very good teams, certainly both capable, I think, of winning this tournament and certainly both capable of, of, of beating a team like, um, uh, like the Philadelphia Union if they go through. From a Philadelphia Union perspective, you know, you are our last hope from an MLS perspective. Uh, I would have liked to have, have it finished one um, that two was kind of a killer. And the fact that you didn't get an away goal, that doesn't help. And there were opportunities. If you watch that game, there were opportunities uh, for Phil uh, for Philadelphia. So this is this is a big ask now coming back to Philadelphia. Is it impossible? No. But, you know, without that away goal and without that one goal type of uh, deficit, um, that that second one was was a killer. So I wouldn't put my money on Philadelphia. But you know, Jim Curtin, I think, is a very, very good coach. I think he's got a very, very good team. A little bit different than than when this, when we last saw these Concacaf Champions League, uh, these Champions League teams. But it, it is, it is certainly there to uh, there to play for. And listening to the Football Picante podcast, um, I've mentioned this before, but they're convinced that the issue for MLS in these competitions is that. Uh, MLS clubs spend a disproportionate amount of money on attacking players. Almost all the DPs are attacking players. And so they've caught up in terms of quality with Liga MX when it comes to the midfield and attack, but uh, they're far below in terms of quality at the back. And that's what ends up hamstringing them in these matchups, which I do think there's probably something to that. Yeah, but it still comes down to money. I mean, the you know, when you have a certain amount of money, you are going to spend it on the people that do the most difficult thing in the game, which is to put the ball in the back of the net. You're not necessarily going to spend it on goalkeepers and, uh, and defenders because they don't put the ball in the net and because they are not sexy. They are not 
people that are going to ultimately sell a lot of tickets or make people turn their heads or, you know, we were talking earlier, bring you, uh, you know, the opportunity to be relevant because of these signings. So that makes sense. I mean, ultimately, it, it it's easy to just say it's about money. But you look at the disparity <laughs> between some of these teams and the amount of money that they have spent, not just on one through 11, but one through 22. And yeah, it's very, very difficult. But, you know, again, each and every year we talk about this. And so should it be a surprise that MLS struggles? No. Should we use it as a crutch? No. And I don't think we do. I think we get on with it, recognizing that in most cases, the MLS teams are playing with one foot behind their back, if you will. And so is it a fair and equal playing field? No, it's never going to be completely equal. But the only way that it gets more equal is if you bring up the spending, or I guess if you bring down the spending from the uh, the other side. But you know, when you're talking about signing center backs, or you're talking about signing more defensive types of players, you know that happens when you have more money and more discretion to be able to spend that because you've already spent money on the sexier names and the players that are going to put the ball in the uh, in the net. That's it. All right. Uh, we're going to take a real quick break. And when we come back, as everyone knows, uh, European leagues have started up and there's all sorts of stuff going on when it comes uh, to Europe. So don't go away. You know, confronting performance concerns has historically been every guy's worst nightmare. Trek into the doctor's office, another awkward conversation, followed by a long wait at the pharmacy. But thankfully, help is here at BlueChew.com, offering the first chewables with the same active ingredients as well-known alternatives, so you'll be 100% confident every time. Plus, your online consultation is free, and delivery arrives in discreet packaging. And here's a special deal for all of our listeners. Try it for free when you use promo code FOXSPORTS at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's BlueChew.com, promo code FOXSPORTS, to receive your first month free. All right, Mossy, we're back uh, here, and uh, we're going to take a trip around Europe because the European leagues have started, and they have started with a bang. All sorts of stuff to talk about. Should we, should we go to England first? Does that sound good? Yes, uh, and, and that was a beefy opening segment, so I'll try to whip through all this okay, no uh, problem. No problem. <laughs> really quickly. Listen, you know. uh, I mentioned last week how I think there's an incredibly strong top four in England this season with uh, City, Chelsea, United, and Liverpool. Uh, three of those four made very strong opening statements this weekend. Uh, Chelsea brushed aside Crystal Palace 3-0. Christian Pulisic among the goal scorers there. Liverpool beat Norwich 3-0. Uh, United hammered Leeds 5-1 thanks to a spectacular performance from Paul Pogba and, and Bruno Fernandes, very good as well. Uh, the one of the four that lost was Manchester City, who lost to, of all teams, Tottenham 1-0, right as they're trying to get this Harry Kane transfer across the line. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you watched that game. What were your impressions? I mean, the the whole narrative that kind of just permeated throughout the stadium and on the field and the Harry Kane and you know, he's in the building. Are you watching Harry Kane? Yeah, he's in the building. He might not be there. You know, he's there. Is he going? Is he coming? And then, I mean, it was amazing to hear, the, you know, the uh, the analysis of, you know, how, how Son's goal and this result will or won't impact that impending transfer. And if that's going to happen, does now, is it more justification for Pep that he, that he needs this player? Is it... Uh, a sense of relief from a Spurs perspective because they can, there is life without uh, Harry Kane. They can be functional and and beat 
you know, arguably the best team in the league, even with without him. I mean, it was fun. Uh, it, it was fun. I don't think that it, in by any stretch of the imagination is Pep or Man City, whether Kane comes or not, is panicked after this result. Um, they, you know, they, they're still missing some players. They're still going to get uh, better. They're still absolutely one of the top teams uh, in this league. But, um, you know, given how the other three of the top four went, this was, you know, there were some some eyebrows raised after this result. I saw a fantastic tweet in the first half when the game was nil-nil. Somebody said, this is the first game I've ever watched where both teams are missing the same yep, striker. Yep, that was amazing. <laughs> that was amazing. Um, let me just say this about the Harry Kane situation. Harry Kane, if you're listening, I know he's a big fan yep, of the State of Union podcast. You can't force your way out of a club that doesn't want to sell you and still come out of it looking like a nice guy. It seems like he's trying to thread that needle and, and have his cake and eat it too. And it's not possible. So there's two weeks left in the transfer window. He has to decide whether he's going to be a Tottenham player this season or if he wants to be a Manchester City player, then he's going to have to behave in a way over the next couple of weeks that's going to irreparably damage his reputation with Tottenham fans. There's no other way to force this move without refusing to train and feigning injury and criticizing the club and, you know, the continual Liverpool playbook, if you will. There's just no other way because Tottenham don't want to sell you. So you, he has to create an untenable, toxic enough situation that they're compelled to sell him before the end of the transfer window. And I just don't know if he has the personality to do that. So he's going to try to, you know, oh, we had a gentleman's agreement as if Daniel Levy cares about honoring a gentleman's agreement or whatever. So, oh, it feels so um, bad for Harry Kane. Oh, is he going to be okay, Mozzie? I hope he's okay. Oh, my goodness. So do you, think uh, this gets, one, do you think this gets done, ultimately? Boy, I'm starting to think no. Really? Like I said, I don't think Kane has the gumption necessary to really, really behave in such a way to push this move across. I could be wrong, but uh, we'll see. Um, now, I mentioned that this strong top four in England, a club that not long ago was considered a perennial top four team, but now is a long way from that, is Arsenal. They actually were involved in the very first match of the season on Friday. They lost to newly promoted Brentford 2-0. Um, I mean, is there anything new to add that we haven't said about our last couple of years? I mean, I, mean, yeah, that, I have to say, Arsenal remind me a little bit of Michigan football, this this former great program that's struggling to figure out what, what it realistically can be right now in this current landscape. I think I think the problem is and it's probably it's not even but it, I think it was on, on display over this these last couple of days was that a general apathy has crept in. This is no longer cause for surprise and or anger. Unfortunately for Arsenal, it is it is expected now. So so when this result happens in real time and after the fact, it's it's not ho hum. It's well, this is this is who we are, and it shouldn't it shouldn't hurt us. And that it doesn't, I don't. It's not that it doesn't hurt, but that it doesn't hurt in the way that it has in the past, I think is reflective of how how fall, how far this mighty have fallen when it comes uh, to Arsenal. They were, you know, they were unrecognizable relative to the previous greats, both in team and individual. They were, <laughs> I mean, they were wearing, what were they? I don't know what they were wearing, but they were, it looked like they were trying to hide <laughs> so we wouldn't recognize that they were actual <laughs> Arsenal in their third kit or whatever with, uh, they were wearing. Yeah, it's 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 not good. And Arsenal will continue to make money and will continue to be a fully functioning and very healthy business. But a lot of that business is predicated on them being one of the elite teams. And they are far from being one of the elite teams right now. And there's a problem when it comes to Arteta, I think, because 
you, you can't fire the team, but you can fire the coach. And a relatively new, young, and inexperienced coach is also incredibly expendable. Uh, Wolves uh, lost to Leicester 1-0. The big news there, Raul Jimenez did go all 90 minutes, which obviously has Mexico national team implications. Uh, But uh, moving on to Germany, Uh, this is my annual trying to talk myself into Dortmund being able to challenge Bayern. So uh, Dortmund, with a strong start to the season, they hammered Frankfurt 5-2. Erlen Holland involved in all five goals. He scored two of his own. Uh, Some places are crediting him with three assists, others just two. But in any event, he was involved in all the goals, uh, including one that Gio Reyna scored. And keep in mind, Holland had already scored a hat trick in their German Cup game the previous weekend. So he's flying already this season. Well, Bayern were held to a, a 1-1 draw by Gladbach. Uh, Joe Scally, American teenager, who's a right back by trade, started at left back when all 90 minutes played well. So we have another young American to be excited about. And then speaking of Americans, Leipzig, their first Bundesliga game under Jesse Marsh, they lost 1-0 to mine. So uh, what did you take away from the weekend in Germany? All right. Well, first off, uh, Joe Scally, congratulations. Uh, looked, looked the part, which is great. Uh, that's the good news. Bad news is you're right back. Um, <laughs> from a national team perspective, uh, if there's one thing that, that we, that's not that we don't need, it's just that we have a glut of, it's, uh, it, it's right backs. But it's still fun to see a player, you know, he, he got a, a couple of games uh, when he was playing with uh, NYCFC um, as, a, uh, you know, as, a, as a teenager, and he continues to be a teenager, but it's, uh, it's great for him. So that was, that was fun to see. Uh, when it comes to you know, Jesse Marsh, that's not the way that you want to start off, especially with the high expectations. You know, along with, I think Dortmund is just a slight, a smidge ahead of the Red Bull in terms of ambition, and not ambition, but in terms of expectations. But still, you know, this is a Red Bull team that there are plenty of people like you, Mossy, when the Bundesliga starts, try to convince themselves that this is someone or uh, this is a team that can challenge. And those are, I think, the expectations uh, when you when you come in. And so this is not a great look or uh, uh, result to start off uh, his his adventure in the Bundesliga for a, a, a very nice. Uh, an expensive machine that is Red Bull. Mentioned Gio Reyna uh, scored for Dortmund. Pulisic scored for Chelsea. Uh, Tyler Adams started for Leipzig. And then circling way back to the Liverpool-Norwich game, uh, Josh Sargent came on for Norwich. So, yeah, another season. Joe Scally, we just talked about another season of just Americans all over the place. Before before we leave uh, the Josh Sargent thing, I mean, I, I think he's in for another long season of scrapping and just trying to keep his head and the team's head above water. Um, and when he came in, he was playing out wide, so he wasn't even playing that number nine position. So I don't, I don't think this is, this doesn't bode well for the continued uh, case that he be the U.S. Men's National Team number nine. I st- I get the move. You, you had to make the move, but you know he's kind of gone from one really difficult situation to another really difficult situation. Uh, moving on to Spain. It took all of one game for uh, Barcelona fans to try to talk themselves in the fact that this might not be a complete disaster because uh, they beat uh, Sociedad 4-2. They played well. Memphis Depay, who's essentially the messy replacement, although it's tough to put that on anybody. He, he was phenomenal yep. in this game. Griezmann played well also. Uh, Sergino Des started, another American. But, 
you know, it's one game. We'll see as the season wears on, but at least so far so good for this post-Messi uh, Barcelona. Yeah, and we saw it, uh, our friends over there at uh, ESPN slash ABC broadcasting uh, uh, live uh, on set as they uh, start their uh you know their campaign over there, Masi. Did you see? And, and I, I, I don't watch a lot of La Liga, but I did tune in. I mean, and it was amazing. You know, part of the pregame show was the fact that Messi isn't there. And look, you can't bury the lead. This guy has been so important to it. the The camera work, the the, the out of focus background filter when they went down to field level during the game. Uh, it was a little jarring, to, to be quite honest. And evidently, it, it has been done before, and it has been done uh, when it comes to the U.S. in uh, in terms of NFL situations. But I know people that watched the game or or just saw it for the first time will know what I'm talking about here. But it's basically um, you're when the camera on the field zooms in on a actual player, it's incredible detail and focus and clarity. But it ends up blurring out the the back, and you have this filter on your phone too. You can use it for uh, for photos and stuff like that. But uh, it was amazing. It was amazing. I I don't know if I like it or not. I I think I do, but I'm not sure yet. Yeah, I find it a tad disorienting. Yeah. I thought ESPN's coverage as a whole was terrific, and they're going to do a great job with La Liga. And I'm a La Liga junkie, so even without Messi, I'm still going to watch a lot of that league. Uh, and, and Barcelona, though, they, they played well. I, I still think this is going to be a two-team race for the title between the two Madrid clubs who both started off strongly as well. Atletico Madrid, 2-1 winners away to Celta Vigo. Angel Correa with both goals. While Real Madrid, and more on them in a moment uh, when we talk PSG and Mbappe, but Real Madrid started off with a 4-1 win over Alaves. Benzema picking up where he left off, uh, scoring twice. And Hazard looked good as well. And Gareth Bale didn't look bad either. So they're, they're already talking themselves into that front three, Bale, Benzema and Hazard. But in no way, shape, or form are you looking at this 2021-2022 version of Barcelona after this first game as as a team that can legitimately compete for the trophies that they have in the past, right? No, yeah. Absolutely not. Um, I agree. And then... Uh, we'll end in France. Keep in mind, Serie A was one of the top five leagues that hasn't started yet. Uh, that starts uh, this upcoming weekend. And so next podcast, we'll really delve into that. Uh, so we'll end with France. PSG, 4-2 uh, winners over Strasbourg. Uh, both Messi and Neymar watched this game from the stands. Uh, so the spotlight was on Mbappe. He got booed at the start of the game. There's been a lot of stories swirling that he's not happy with Messi's arrival, that he wants to go to Real Madrid. He's obviously refused to sign a contract extension. So the fans have turned on him a bit, which uh, folks in Madrid were very happy to see that because anything that <laughs> pushes him even more towards wanting to come to Madrid. Uh, he did play great, by the way. He was involved in three of their four goals. And the Madrid media has been rife with stories that this week he's going to have a meeting with the PSG faithful and inform them that he really wants to go to Real Madrid this summer. I'm not sure I buy that. I think that might be the Madrid media overhyping things a bit, but there's enough smoke to me that that's where he wants to end up eventually. And and what makes sense for all parties, I think even PSG to an extent is him going for free next summer. And you said, well, wait a minute. How does that make sense for PSG? Well, you know, they want to win the Champions League. And I think keeping Mbappe for another season, having him play alongside Neymar and Messi really increases their chances of winning it this season. And if they do, it would really soften the blow of having Mbappe walk out the door for free next summer. Also knowing that you have Neymar and, and Messi. Um, so, and, and from Mbappe's perspective, he would, you know, pre- have a lot of fun this season playing on this super PSG team, 
there's a good chance he'd win the Champions League and then he'd get to go out on a high, go to Real Madrid for free without some huge price tag hanging over his shoulders. And obviously it makes financial sense for, for Real Madrid to just wait one more year and sign him for free. So I still think that's where the situation's trending. But if you read the Madrid media the last 24 hours, they're convinced that there's still a lot of twists and turns here over the next two weeks that he might try to force his way out this summer. Wow, really? Uh, I think it completely changes the dynamic uh, or the way that I look at that team without Mbappe. I think his part of that trident up top, uh, you know, even though he's not necessarily yet, I mean, he's a huge name, but he's not the Neymar Messi-esque type of figure. I think that he is the key component to that. I think he, in a strange way, gives credibility to these other two players who either through age or personality have, you know, not, it's not, it's not hurt them, but I, I just think the interest level for me would decrease without Mbappe. I think he's part of that. So I hope, I hope he, I hope we at least get one season out of this and see what it is. No, I agree. Uh, I have a feeling that Real Madrid are going to be the PSG of next summer. They're going to get Mbappe and Holland, and they're going to be the team that everybody's going to be uh, marveling at the, 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 the transfer business they did next summer. I just think it's trending that way. Remember, Holland next summer, the buyout clause is only 75 million euros, and Mbappe's contract is done. So they could get those two players for a, a total transfer fee of 75 million euros, which is uh, you know, mind boggling. So uh, I keep an eye on that. I have a feeling that's where this is going. Uh, and now as for this PSG transfer, when they unveiled all their new signings uh, before this game, and there's some discussion about, is this the best transfer window any team has ever had? And, and one that folks have brought up is the 2009 Real Madrid one, where they signed Cristiano Ronaldo, Kaká, Benzema, Xabi Alonso, among others. So uh, I mean, what do you think? Uh, do, you, do you like this PSG one with Messi, Sergio Ramos, Georgina Wijnaldum, Ashraf Hakimi, Donnarumma, or that one Real Madrid way back in 2009? I like this one. I like this one. I, I'm excited about this. Well, you know, strictly financially, uh, they were able to sign a lot of these players on free transfers while Real Madrid paid massive mm -hmm. fees for the, for the players I just mentioned. So, um, and, and keep in mind, Kaká ended up being a flop. So it remains to be seen how these PSG players are going to perform. But I will say in terms of the status the players had coming in, I would argue the Real Madrid 2009 one is even a little bit better because Ronaldo and Kaká were, were thought of as two of the top three or four best players in the world uh, when they signed them. So they had two big glamorous stars that they signed in that window versus PSG. It's, it's really messy. And then all the other guys are very good players as well, but not on that level where you'd say they're, you know, top handful of best players in the world. So uh, that's how I would look at that. But uh, no, yeah, I mean, a lot of interesting stuff going on. We've still got two weeks left before the end of the transfer window. So we'll keep an eye on all this Mbappe, Kane. It's fascinating. All right. Well, that's a pretty good synopsis of what's going on there. Uh, you happy with that, Mossy? Yep. Absolutely. All right, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, oh, yeah, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. 
Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. All right, we're back, and it's time for Ask Alexi. Uh, you uh, either you know, send uh, on the uh, social media platforms, you send in a comment, question, or concern, you use that hashtag Ask Alexi, as people often do, or you can even call in, as people have done. Our number is 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297. That is the State of the Union hotline, where you can call in, like I said, and leave us a, well, hopefully a decent uh, and interesting and entertaining comment, question, or concern, as some folks have this year. I think we've, or this, uh, this week, I think we've, uh, I think we got a call here uh, to start us off, Mossy. Yep. All right. Uh, let's see. Alejandro from Las Vegas. Let's hear what uh, Alejandro has to say. Hey, Alexi and uh, David. This is Alejandro from Las Vegas. I uh, love the show. Um, I just had a quick question uh, for both of you guys. Um, I was actually at that Allegiant final, uh, Allegiant Stadium uh, final for the Gold Cup between Mexico and U.S. Um, this is a question for both of you guys. Um, I know you guys are big U.S. Na- national team fans, so um, do you obviously, do you guys uh, um, genuinely feel high about this U- U.S. men's national team from both finals, from the Nations League and from World Cup? Uh, at least in my opinion, from my point of view, the, those, both, both of those finals were very, very weakly won, in my opinion. Um, you know, it was a penalty that decided the Nations League that was debatable. And this time it was, you know, it, you know, they, the U.S. took advantage, and, you know, and scored that header. But do, do you feel like those were strong victories? I, I feel like some of the U.S. Uh, national team fans are getting a little ahead of themselves. I'm not saying they didn't win. Of course they won, you know, and they deserve the praise for that. But the way they won it, I, uh, I wouldn't be proud of that. I'm not proud, I'm sorry. I wouldn't be uh, confident in the way they won. I would like to know what you guys think. Thanks. Ooh, okay, Alejandro. Interesting, and I think it's it's absolutely a valid question um, and concern, I guess, and maybe not a concern, but uh, pointing it out, I think, is 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 fair. In that, you know, when Greg Berhalter started with the national team, he came in and he very, very publicly uh, and very clearly articulated that he wanted to do some different things, that he wanted this team to play differently than in the past, to, for lack of a better word, evolve, play a more progressive type of, uh, of game. And a lot of that has to do with maintaining more possession and playing out of the back and maybe being more patient and doing some things differently than we have done in the past where it's been much more about you know, the physical part of the game, the set pieces, the transition, the counterattack, absorbing pressure, defending, that kind of stuff. And so when we ultimately get down to looking at the, the greatest success that he has had, which has come over this summer in the form of the Nations League success and then in the form of the Gold Cup, when we look at these finals against Mexico, which is ultimately where you're really judged uh, against teams that are as good and Many would argue better than you, which is the case, I think, for El Tree. How the game plays out and how you ultimately choose to play in that moment should be of consequence. And so I think, to Alejandro's point, when we look at the way that they played 
and we said it at the time, and, and it bears repeating, there was, I guess, a regression. And, and that's not a pejorative. That's not a bad thing. At least I don't look at it as a bad thing. But in the context of what Greg Berhalter has is, is promised, it can be a concern because when it really came down to it, when you needed it most, you became a version of what this team has always been. Now, you could argue a better version of ourselves, which I would argue, but really it came down to you know set pieces, great goalkeeping, um, not necessarily having wonderful possession, uh, not necessarily maintaining possession. Yes, at times, maybe more so in the past, playing out of the back than, than we have done. So, and once again, I don't know if that is just in that moment, that's what this team needed to do. And so it was just a pragmatism creeping in. But in essence, you could argue that it was a betrayal of what we have been promised. I don't, I, I, I don't see that. I, I do think that this, this team has evolved and, uh, and progressed. But I do think that, and maybe Greg Berhalter needed this summer to convince him that, you know what? Rather than trying to make it something that it isn't, I'm just going to make it a better version of itself. And I think ultimately, when you look at this team, that is the best that we can expect. And in doing so, it can be incredibly successful. And it can be, and it can be better. And it can evolve. I just think it's going to maybe be done in a different way than we were promised or that Greg Berhalter thought in the moment he could do it. So good question there. Good question. Yeah. Now, we recently had uh, Stephen Mandis mm-hmm. on the podcast, an author who wrote a terrific book about the U.S. national team. And him and I butted heads a little bit because I'm on the page that the U.S. should try to play a more expansive, evolved brand of soccer. While he believes, like you said, they should just try to be the best version of themselves, embrace that identity from the 90s, a scrappy sort of underdog kind of team. Uh, and the morning after that uh Gold Cup final win over Mexico. He made sure to send me a couple of uh, snarky texts, you know, saying, you see, you see. He even used the fact that you were crying on air as evidence that this is the way the U.S. should play, because that's what really resonates with the American public. And, and I think, by the way, Stephen realized he came on a bit too strong because he then spent the next several days texting me about Brazil winning the Olympic gold medal and all these congratulatory messages. And so he was trying to sort of curry favor with me again. But uh, yeah, we'll have to have him on again soon. I I don't think that the, for lack of a better word, Americanness is ever a bad thing. Uh, The more, (laughs) the better, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Okay. What, uh, what else do we have? I think we have a, an an actual question from somebody on the old uh, Twitter platform, right? Yes. uh, At Arumbula Eldi asked, did U.S. soccer miss on not keeping David Ochoa? David Ochoa, the goalkeeper for Real Salt Lake right now and a dual national. And there are more and more of these. And especially when it comes to the U.S. and Mexico, uh, we come to find out that he has made his decision in that he uh, has decided that for him, uh, pursuing an, op- an opportunity for the U.S. Me- or the, uh, for the Mexican national team is what he wants to do. Uh, congratulations. Uh, and best of luck. Did we miss out? Um, well, the fact that he's a goalkeeper, um, and it does matter, I think, the position that you're playing, because there is an assessment going on. You know, as much as we talk about your heart and and what you truly believe inside, you know, ultimately there is a practical element of you want to, if you're going to choose a side to play on, you want to choose a side that you have a chance of playing on. Now, that, should that be the overriding thing? Not necessarily, but you know, it's, we're, they're all human beings. And, 
you know, you know, when someone like Alex Roldan chooses to play for El Salvador, it's because he also recognizes that while he has a connection, he also has a really good chance of playing for that team and a better chance than if he chose the United States. Um, and in this case, David Ochoa, I, I don't doubt that he feels a connection. And he actually wrote a wonderful piece explaining why he made this decision. And I think it was genuine. I think it was truthful. Um, and I think it was authentic in the way that he came to this decision. Am I losing sleep over it? Absolutely not. Okay, so one, we have plenty of good goalkeepers. And I think he also saw the fact that, you know, maybe from an L3 perspective, there are goalkeepers that are coming, that are older and coming to the end. So there's an opportunity there as opposed to, you know, this next crop of goalkeepers that we have that are going to be here for the next decade. But also, you know, I... I I don't, I'm not going to get down on my knees and beg for anyone. Now, it doesn't mean that we aren't going to do everything possible um, to entice players. I think that is part of the job now. So whether it's Ernie Stewart or Brian McBride or Greg Berhalter in terms of leadership of a national team, you know, you are, you're not doing your job and you're doing your country uh, a disservice if you are not doing the things to try to recruit these players within reason, okay? Because I want you to meet me halfway. I want it to mean something to you. I want you to feel it inside about the pride that you feel in representing whatever country it is. And so I'm glad that whatever it is inside you that told you, whether it is an emotional thing or whether it's a practical reason, that it steered you to something that you are comfortable with now. I don't want you second guess, uh, guessing. That's not a player that I want representing me and my country uh, on the field. So no, I don't think that we miss out on not having uh, David Ochoa as a potential player for the U.S. men's national team. Uh, I think another player the U.S. is going to lose is Julian Araujo of the LA Galaxy. A lot of stories last week about him uh, potentially having chosen Mexico. Uh, we interviewed him in the pregame uh, of the uh, Minnesota Galaxy uh, match on Saturday and Jenny Taft straight up asked him any truth of these rumors about Mexico. And he gave kind of a yeah. uh, non-denial, denial, dodged it. Yeah. Uh, but I came away from the interview thinking that it's probably true because if it wasn't true, he would have, uh, <laughs> he made it clear that it wasn't true. So, yeah. I, mean, I mean, um, another so, right back, right? Yeah. I was going to say, I, I think a show is no loss. Uh, Araujo, or I guess everybody calls him Araujo, right? I'm, I'm, I'm giving it kind of a Spanish connotation, which pretty soon might be the right way to go right. there. <laughs> if he's playing for Mexico. Um, uh, I think he's a little bit of a loss, but get, as you mentioned, because of depth at right back, not so much. The the one decision that's coming up soon that I think would be a major loss would be Ricardo Pepe if Mexico were able to lure mm -hmm. him, because given the uh, issues at center forward, you'd want a prospect like that to still be in the pipeline there. Uh, but I will say, big picture, uh, you can tell U.S. fans, their mindset has changed over the last few years. Uh, it used to be that they would feel like the reason to choose the, the U.S. would be a, a greater opportunity for playing time relative to some of these other top countries. And now the U.S. has, has so much talent that people feel like that's actually working against the U.S. in some cases. And But but then it, even if you lose a player, you can sort of comfort yourself with the fact that it's, it's sort of a compliment to how, how much depth you have that players are now scared off by the competition within the U.S. program. So it's interesting the way things have and, and, you know, in this inevitable quest to amass talent, I, I don't want to stockpile, you know, I mean, I, I don't think that's fair to the player either. And so, you know, bringing him in just so the other 
team, whether it's Mexico or anybody else, doesn't get them, while strategically that might be an advantage and might be the right play from a competitive standpoint, I just think it's shitty. And, you know, and and look, I think that, that, like I said, Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride and uh, Greg Berhalter, I think they sit down and they assess players and said, is this a player that we actually want to expend energy on and resource and time to recruit? Does this player matter to us? Is this a player that's going to fit? Because we don't want to waste their time and we don't want them to waste our time because that time is precious that could be spent on uh, on others. So, you know, whether it's David Ochoa or Araujo or anybody else, I, I wish them well. And look, they might they might be the reason why we lose to Mexico in the future, okay? But we can't at that point say, oh, we really screwed up by letting that one uh, get away. What we... what. What I also don't want to have happen is that we're not doing the things to at least reach out and have those relationships and have that type of communication that facilitates the potential of a player that we want actually coming with us. That is not, that's dereliction of, uh, of duty, and that's a problem. Uh, we'll end on this. At Straight Out of HP asks, uh, this Field of Dreams game seems cool. What would be the U.S. soccer equivalent game slash venue? So uh, for, for those that didn't see it, the, uh, the Field of Dreams uh, happened happened on our air. And look, I, I don't watch baseball. I have not, I don't necessarily, it's not that I don't enjoy it. I just have never gotten into it. But I cared about this game the other day that was in the Iowa. Is that where it was? I think Iowa. Heaven. Okay, whatever. But, you know, in a cornfield in Iowa, for those that saw the movie Field of Dreams, they recreated an incredible uh, recreation of that actual field. And then they actually had a game and it was, I mean, I think they had 16 million viewers or something like that. The most in who knows, a couple decades or something like that. So it resonated and it resonated beyond just baseball fans. And it, you know, it, it tapped into nostalgia and this incredible Kevin Costner movie that was such a big, uh, a big hit. And they just, they knocked it out of the park, if you will. Um, in everything that they uh, they did. So if there was a soccer version of that, it's a little difficult because the history that we have is is not as robust or long relative to uh, to baseball. But you know, I I said you, you so you'd have to find a you know a out of the way, very unique, different type of location than we are used to. And what one thing we've talked about over the years is, the U.S. national team has never played a game in Alaska. So I I envisioned doing a game in um, Denali, which is the, the forest up there used to be called uh, McKinley or whatever, um, right at the base of Denali that used to be called Mount McKinley there in that national forest in this pristine environment out in the middle of nowhere. And I know, you know, there's a hockey movie about that, but from a soccer perspective, we've never really been up there. Um, but doing it as a U.S.-Mexico game up there and kind of creating, you know, in the way that they created the Field of Dreams there, creating a replica of um, what's now called Historic Crew Stadium um, there in Columbus, which was the scene of so many incredible moments of U.S.-Mexico games. So I, that might be something the, that could happen. I don't know, Mossy, you have any thoughts on on how we would go about doing a field of dreams type of thing. We don't really have a whole, you know, catalog of soccer movies to tap into either. 
Yeah, I don't really have a, a good answer for you there, but I will say this whole field of dreams game uh, spawned a lot of debate. I was talking about this uh, this past weekend with Fox Sports executive Brad Zager. That's a name drop, by the way. Well I'm done, sure buddy. That I interact well with done. people at the highest levels of this company, but we were discussing what is the best late 80s, early 90s baseball movie? Is it Field of Dreams, Bull Durham, Major League, Eight Men Out, A League of Their Own? Uh, lots of candidates there. So in, in People have been debating that on Twitter, and so we had that debate as well on the control. What do you room. got? What, uh, what are you coming up with? Is the natural in your list? Uh, yeah, that was a few years before, though, so it doesn't really get lumped into that mix. Um, you know, I love A League of Their Own. I think that movie's phenomenal, but uh, he kind of talked me into Major League probably being the best one. Really? You're not a big Major League well, guy? Well, no, I mean, because I would... You know, Major League is much more of a comedy, and I know comedies oftentimes get uh, don't get short shrifted. You know, when 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 we're thinking about epic type of movies, um, no, but I, I I think Bull Durham is because I because I, it has the comedic part of it, it has the love story. It you don't have to like baseball. Yeah, I I think it's I think it's look, I love Major League. I think it's it's hilarious and wonderful, but I. I would have to put Bull Durham ahead of that. Field of Dreams was, you know, much more of a fairy tale, and I, I, I enjoyed it, but I didn't enjoy it as much as Bull Durham or Major League for that matter, or The Natural for that matter. The most underrated is Eight Men Out, which is about That's the really Black Sox too. scandal. Yeah. I really, really like that movie. It wasn't promoted in the right way, you know. It didn't yeah. get the. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Okay, all right. So anyway, let let us know what you think if. If U.S. soccer were to do a field of dreams, what would it look like? How, what, you know, as I said, I gave you my example of something like that. But, you know, we do have a history when it comes to soccer. It's not as well known, obviously, as, uh, as baseball. But there is a history that we, could, that we could tap into. But you want to get as many people into that tent and relating to it as possible. Uh, all right, Mossy, anything else from an Ask Alexi perspective? That's it. All right, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll close it out with my one for the road. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. All right, welcome back. And we've come to the end of yet another State of the Union podcast. And at the end of each and every pod, as you know, I give you my one for the road. Uh, we came on air today and we come to find out that the great Carly Lloyd has called it quits. This will be her last year. Um, the U.S. women's national team has a little tour here this fall. So from a national team perspective, um, you will be able to see her a few more times playing for the national team. She will continue with NWSL uh, through the rest of the season, um, you know, playing uh, playing club. And this is uh, this is the end of an era for a, a player who has meant so much to the game, to the game in general, not men's, women's, just to the game. She is a well-known, fierce competitor, the likes of which we probably haven't seen in many sports. She has had twists and turns 
when it comes to her life and her career. And she has fallen down and gotten up time and time again. Ultimately, she is a winner. She has been an incredible representative for what I feel is the greatest country in the world, in the U.S., in the things that she has done for this team and in the sacrifices uh, that she has made to be the best. And she will go down as one of the greatest of all time when it comes to soccer players in history and certainly when it comes to American soccer players. And so I, I wish her well. I'm always curious when you have one of these greats come to the end and stop kicking the ball where that person goes. And, uh, and I've talked about before, there is the understandable need and desire to replace that feeling with something else. And it's next to impossible. And Carly Lloyd will quickly find that out. But she's also a very smart person. Uh, I think she thinks about life beyond kicking the ball. I'm here to tell you, Carly, if you're listening, there is a life beyond kicking the ball. And I think that you will be afforded opportunities that others may not be um, because of the legend that you are. And you will be able to kind of pick and choose what you want to do. And I hope that whatever it is that you figure out, that it excites you, uh, that it motivates you, that it provides you with a passion, a different passion and a different emotion than playing, but one that is of equal and hopefully maybe even more gratification than what you did on the soccer field. You will always be defined to a certain extent by the greatness that uh, you had on the soccer field. But a soccer career, while it, is de- while it can be defining, is a very short period of life. And now the rest of your life begins. And I think it can be spectacular given some of the attributes that you bring and the personality that you bring. And like I said, I'll be curious to see as to where you put that, that, uh, that energy and that incredible work ethic that you have and that incredible desire to succeed. And if it is, if it is done correctly, I think it would be incredible, incredibly beneficial to you and whoever or whatever it is that you are putting it uh, towards. So um, as, a, as another great person from New Jersey once said, uh, you did it your way. And you certainly did. And at times you took shots. Uh, but ultimately you believed in, uh, in your ability. And you worked incredibly hard for all of the success that you got. And uh, uh, so congratulations on a wonderful career uh, from Jersey's own Carly Lloyd. And by the way, go Rutgers as a fellow Rutgers alumni. Um, congratulations, Carly Lloyd. And thank you. Thank you for everything that you have done uh, for the game. And dare I say, everything that you are going to continue to do for this great game. Uh, anything else, Mossy? Uh, I do want to mention we have a new lead producer on this podcast, Luis okay. Aguilar. Uh, he's the Gerald Ford of podcast producers. It's an amazing confluence of events the last couple of years that have led to him stumbling onto this role, but uh, he's doing a good job so far. Yes, uh, our friend Jeff Hernandez has uh, moved on to hopefully uh, greener pastures. We wish him well and we thank him for everything that he did for us. And 
Next man up. All right, Louise, you better figure this out. I mean, you are now in a long line of people that have uh, that have come into this seat, and it is it is a hot seat at times. But so far, so good. Being the uh, producer of this podcast is like being the Mexican national team coach. It's a- <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as uh, as long as you're not coming up against the U.S., I think you're going to be okay for uh, for now. But. Uh, whether it's uh, whether it's qualifying, which starts this fall, or another show, which comes next week, all right, you're only as good as your last game or your last show. And Luis is uh, is wonderful. We're, we're happy to have him uh, steering the ship, as the uh, as the case may be here. Uh, all right, we will be back again next week. Thank you so much for tuning into the State of the Union podcast. Thank you for writing and reviewing and subscribing and calling in. Once again, that number six five seven five four nine two two nine seven. If you want to uh, get on our hotline, use the Ask Alexi hashtag out there. Uh, thank you for following us. Uh, as I said, thank you for reviewing and rating and, and uh, doing all the different things that you do on all the different platforms out there. Uh, it is absolutely a labor of. Uh, a labor of love so much so that I actually got a, uh, uh, a, uh, a quick, uh, tweet, t- uh, this week from somebody who made it very, very clear that th- listening to this pod had soothed and calmed them so much so that they were actually getting ready to go in for their second surgery after having, uh, you know, an earlier sur- surgery and they listened to the pod and, you know, the dulcet tones of our voices and the way that we talk about soccer was incredibly soothing to them. So we are, we are doing great things here, Mossy, for, uh, for, uh, for people when it comes to not just the soccer world, but evidently the medical world. <laughs> Doctor's going to start prescribing, you know, if you have an illness, there you listen go. to yeah. the State of the Union podcast. You, you, your disease, you have a horrible disease, but I got the cure. I got the <laughs> antidote. Just subscribe to the State of the Union podcast. All right, we'll see you again next week right here on the State of the Union podcast. And until then, and as always, size the day. Size the day.